in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. God, I I am so happy. And honestly, I'm I feel at home, and, and I feel at homo. The the author of the just published "Hi, Honey, I'm Homo," Matt Baum. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am loving your book. I I am so excited to dive into it. Uh, but first. You know, this is a book about about television, uh, about popular entertainment. Uh, what are you What are you currently popularly uh, entertained by? What are you What are you watching, listening to, reading, etc.? Oh my goodness, so so many things. Um, I'm doing a rewatch of All in the Family because that just holds up perfectly, and it's very on brand for me. Uh, I also That's just so got good. Manuel Betancourt's new book, The Male Gazed, which is, I, I cannot wait to dive into this. And uh, what Kyle Turner's new book, uh, The Queer Film Guide. There's a lot of great gay books coming out. Oh, and you had uh, you had the wonderful Byron Lane on uh, just a few weeks ago to talk about his new book. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of stuff coming at us. It's gay book summer. Yeah. Matt Baum. Uh, yeah, okay. All in the family. Let's talk all in the family. Un- unbelievably... Uh, forward thinking and mm-hmm. and modern and uh something that like sort of couldn't be made now but not for the reasons that people think yeah gosh what an incredible show especially when you look at what was going on on television at the same time it's wild to think this but for for just a like a little moment when um it was starting up all in the family almost overlapped with the show bewitched like, can you imagine a television yeah. landscape where those are your two options? In fact, they would have, uh, because on the family they tried to get that going in the late '60s, and they made two pilots until they finally figured it out. But um, right. yeah, so I mean, uh, for folks who aren't familiar, on the family, an incredible show um, that I mean, the name kind of says it all. It's a family that is dealing with all the real things that families go through. It's not just I burnt the roast and the boss is coming to dinner. Uh, but you know, they talk about their sex lives and, uh, they talk about bigotry and, um, they talk about, you know, violence and, you know, and at the time when this was on television, people were like, oh my God, can you believe this? We're clutching our pearls. How can you, and people would ask Norman Lear, so much happens in this family. This is bonkers. Do you think this is actually what people's real lives are like? And the answer is Yes, yes, that is what people do. People, yeah. people, people get venereal diseases. You know, <laughs> it, yeah. all this, all this stuff. Right, and and you know, Archie Bunker is obviously you know extremely um, backwards, mm-hmm. uh, often bigoted, um, and and proudly so, and is uh, is proven to be wrong all of the time. Yeah, and um, it's what, yeah. that's what's incredible about the show too is that. You know, people sometimes call him the lovable bigot, and I think that really doesn't quite get it. 
I, I don't think I th- yeah. there's there's more to Archie than that. He's a person who has essentially been kind of failed by the time in which he grew up. He grew up in a time when, you know, men can't show affection and th- there's nothing wrong with slurs. That's just how we talk about those people. And so, yeah. you know, you see this great conflict that, that the core of the show is Archie's conflict with his with the younger generation. And, you know, he I wouldn't say Archie learns his lesson, but Archie, you do see him change and reconsider and grow. And there's this great quote from Bud Yorkin, who is one of the other creators. He says something like they were getting 5000 letters a week and. There was this one letter that they got of a guy who wrote that he was shaving in the mirror, looking in the mirror, and he saw Archie Bunker looking back at him, and he said, and I didn't like it. And, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. What? Great. So there's a lot more going on there than just, like, giving a character license to say slurs, which which he does, too. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah. I think it's appropriate. It's, it's, it's part of the character, and it, it shows, I think, all in the family, and, and being as harsh as it sometimes could be provides an example of how to process those people in your life. Yeah, exactly. It's um I've been seeing stuff on, you know, I mean, why am I still on Twitter? But I've been seeing stuff on Twitter where like, you know, the new blue checks are like, mm-hmm. you can never make own family now. You can't say that kind of stuff on TV anymore. And it's like, "Hey, yes you fucking can." <laughs> and everyone yeah. it's like it's not it's, things have gotten no nicer. Um, but it's also like you, you were not paying attention to the show at all. You just heard the slurs mm-hmm. and we're like, cool. Yeah. And that's it. And do it. Didn't do any, any deeper thinking about it. I think, I think they're, <sighs> they're, they're right. But for the wrong reason, when they say you couldn't make it today, I think one of the things standing in the right. way of making it all in the family is television for one thing, willing to take a chance on something. Uh, and for another thing, being willing to pay for the talent and skill and everything that it took to like the writing on that show yeah. is astonishing. And the acting there, I mean, you know, there, of course, prestige television exists, but um, not, not like I, you know. And it's it's hard to call on the family prestige television exactly, but yeah. the quality of that show. I was I, I was on an airplane. I was doing some work, and I had to like watch some All in the Family because that's the kind of life I lead. And so I'm on the plane watching an episode of All in the Family. It's this episode where Archie and Mike, his son-in-law, get stuck. They're they're locked in a basement for for the night. And they start talking to each other and Archie's using these slurs and Mike's telling him he's wrong to use those slurs. And Archie says, what's the problem? My dad talked to me. You know, that's the that's what my dad said. And Mike says, your dad was wrong. And this really gets to like what the show is about. Your dad was wrong. And he shouts it. And Archie has this incredible speech where he says, how could you say my father was wrong? He was the first man who said he loved me. He held my hand and walked me in the park. He threw a ball for me. How could somebody who loved me be wrong? And you see so much emoting happening on his face. It's just a beautiful scene. And you see, oh, this guy's not malicious. He's just come from a world where the the modern consideration that, you know, in the seventies was modern. We're still struggling with to this day. Unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, familiarity in this, in this conflict um, where he just hasn't considered. And he's kind of locked into this old way of thinking that he just cannot get out of because he's afraid. Anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful show, and the quality of truly. yeah, the quality of it is something that you just don't see on television often. True, true. Uh, let's talk uh, uh, prestige television. Mm. Are you partaking in any? You know, when people say you should watch this or that, um, my go-to excuse is: Look, I only just started watching Ally McBeal. It's going to take me a while to catch up. But yeah, part of it is also because I just don't know how to turn on a television and watch. <laughs> watch over the air broadcasts and there's just yeah. there's so much i will say 
I'm really enjoying Star Trek Strange New Worlds. That really delighted me. And the new season, I cannot wait that Carol Kane is going to be on there. Like, never, never in a million years was I thinking like, you know what Star Trek needs is Carol Kane. But now that they've... Everything needs Carol Kane. Of course, now that they've announced it, I'm like, where have you been all my life? So I love that. And then, you know, I'm very excited for whenever it happens, the new season of Our Flag Means Death. And cross my fingers that whatever HBO is now doesn't, you know, pull the plug on that. But I'm so excited for more of that. Right. Carol Kane. Like, uh, uh, Academy Award nominated 50 years ago? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. for Yeah. Yeah. For Hester Street, like yeah. in the early 70s. Yeah. Like, Taxi. Went out with uh, Woody Harrelson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just like t- timeless. And what, I think she's in a Woody Allen film as well. Like young, young, young. She might be. And yeah, yeah, she's you know, and people maybe maybe the kids today might know her as like for Run Lillian or you know whatever from Kimmy Schmidt. But yeah, she's just a, a fantastic, so funny, so funny as a comedian and so moving as an actress. Right, Renaissance woman. Yeah, she needs she needs her due. She needs her due. Quite frankly, absolutely. Uh, so do you do like a, are you like a Pluto TV person? <laughs> are you a Tubi? I'm like, I'm all over the place. What we were just, mm-hmm. I just started watching with my partner, um, uh, Three's Company, <laughs> which I wow. shockingly only seen like little bits and pieces here and there. But uh, we started watching Three's Company and I, I don't remember what that's, it's on one of those like fly by night, free go or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm such an old person. I don't know what anything's called, but for the, for the, you know, I've, I've got to get for the work that I do. You know, and it's, these are all, you know, for, for my business, Netflix and Disney and Paramount and, you know, CBS All Matlock yeah. or whatever those channels are, <laughs> I just right. have to keep signing up for them. I know. I'm spending more than I did when I had like proper direct TV. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm really, and, I'm like, yeah. can, is it too late to put the cable back to, can I just like stitch the cable splice? I, yes. I cut the cord, yes. but now I want it I back. Mean, I want that cord back. <laughs> so that cord back together. I'm yeah, I am very much the same way. And it, it does feel like that's what we're going back to, mm. you know, uh, like the streamers are eventually going to have to bundle together in some way to make themselves profitable. And we'll be back to where we were. Right now, all I'm doing is uh, turning on Pluto mm-hmm. to the game show channel mm-hmm. and watching, you know, four to eight episodes of Supermarket Sweep in a row. Oh, great. And loving it. Great. Loving what it. What a comfort. I heard a story what once a that um, all the frozen foods on the show after the first couple episodes are fake. They're plastic prop food. Sure. Because they didn't yeah. realize, like, it's a TV studio and we got these lights and, the, all, the, like, the first few episodes of Supermarket Sweep, there were just, like, meat juices pouring all over everyone. Oh, everything. God. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah, everything's got to be fake. Those big turkeys? <laughs> yeah. They can't be real. Yeah. They can't, can't be real. <laughs> Sitting out for hours. Sitting out in the hot stage lights <laughs> yeah. for hours, I don't know how they stayed so fresh. I and I, I really have to tell you, the the hottest men on television right now are on '90s reruns of Supermarket Sweep. Really, really. There's just something about a, a, a California man from 1991 and a high waisted jean and a colorful sweater. I was, um, I was gonna ask. They don't make them like that anymore. What's, what's the, what's the '90s vibe? Is it like '90s dad or like '90s closeted? Like, here's me and my roommate. Shh. All, all of them, mm. all of the, all of the, all of the archetypes are there. Yeah, they're they're like cute dads, and there's like you know young college students, and <laughs> there definitely are you know quote unquote roommates uh-huh. uh, or coworkers or whatever. But yeah, there's just there's like a sort of like guilelessness or something. There's like there's just it, it's 
it just looks fresh and real and like um, not overly manicured, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but get yourself to the game show channel on uh, Pluto TV and you'll see for yourself. I love or that. Or I'll just start doing screen caps and uh, posting them. <laughs> Honestly. The yeah, Men of Supermarket The Men of Supermarket Sweep. Get that like as a day calendar or something. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. 365 uh, <laughs> Supermarket Sweep men in a, in a, in a, in a docker, mm-hmm. in a, a snug fitting docker. Mm. Uh, what, uh, Matt Baum, was your family like? Mm. What, uh, how did you, what kind of family did you grow up in and where? Oh, a very charming nuclear family. So I grew up in Connecticut and I, you know, I, I have to recognize, like I grew up in a position of great privilege here because, um, my parents are both, um, their, their work. And we didn't really talk about this very much when I was a kid, but both my parents worked in gay men's health before I was born. Um, wow. my mother, uh, did a, I think it was a dissertation on, um, STI rates in, in the South. And like, that was part of her project as an anthropology student. And, uh, my dad worked, uh, in HIV counseling and testing. Um, he was more of a statistical guy, um, for the, for, it wasn't for the Centers for Disease Control, but it was something for, for Connecticut State. And so, um, they were super comfortable with gay stuff. We didn't talk about it much, uh, because we're also, um, a family that is like, I, I, this is going to sound like it, it was more dramatic and traumatic than it was, which it wasn't. But um, we didn't really talk about feelings. And, you know, it wasn't we weren't really a um, bear our souls, like, you know, get drunk, loosen your tongue and say how you feel kind of family. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, loving and, you know, kind of funny for the work that I do now. Growing up, uh, my parents were very aware of the power of television and were really scrupulous about uh, monitoring what we were watching, watching as a family and limiting our access to it. And now like television is all I do. Uh, And then the other thing is that as a kid, I had this intense fear of movie theaters. I could not go to movie theaters until I was really like almost in my twenties. Like I just was terrified of them. Yeah. And I don't know what happened. I don't think I had a bad experience. I did see I saw The NeverEnding Story and something about that, The NeverEnding Story 2. It was The NeverEnding Story 2 in a theater. Uh-huh. And the concept of someone's mind being slowly taken from, like his memories being taken away, was too much and, and freaked me out. Uh, so <laughs> wow. maybe it was that. I don't know. But um, yeah, so I, I had a really limited media diet because of my parents' mm-hmm caution you know we didn't watch television before the news that was the rule like it's no tv before six o'clock and then um you know and then my my movie theater issues whatever they that anxiety as a little kid was uh yeah so it was only and then you know and then i went okay. to film school of all things <laughs> of course yeah. i mean obviously yes you go you, you go yeah it's, it's the the thing that scares you most is the thing that you must face i guess uh, one of the one of the earliest things I remember seeing on the internet, and I'm, I'm glad you brought uh, cinemaphobia up, mm-hmm. uh, because something I saw, this probably in like the mid 90s, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, w- once, you know, I had like a home computer that connected to the internet. There was a website that ranked um, uh, production company or studio IDs mm. for, before th- before movies, yeah. right? Um, describe them and rank them by how scary they were. Oh, that's great. Which is like, I and I was like, I kind of thought I was the only one. 
Where, like where there's you know where there's just blank nothingness and then like the the united artists logo appears. yeah that used to a little bit freak me out like where is where is this hap- where is this coming from yeah or that orion is, is pictures? this happening in space yeah yes oh. yeah that one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah there is just something about like you're watching an image and sometimes it's very quiet um that spooked me out a little bit when i was a kid there's a great music video by this band called dvno do you know this one? Uh-huh. Um, the, the music, the entire music video, it's kind of a lyrics video um, uh-huh. where the words of the song that they're singing are spelled out in referential motion graphics. So uh-huh. the whole the whole song, all the lyrics of the song are spelled out in, you know, it's like, um, you know, the HBO, the old HBO logo where it's like the computer graphics flying around the inside of the yeah, letter. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's like that. And then it's the that end of show um, button where the guy's typing on the typewriter and pulls out the page and it flaps around and then lands. And that's the logo. Yeah. And the, I don't know, the Carol Co logo. So, you know, it's all logos from things that you kind of recognize, but modified to spell the lyrics of the song. It's so clever. And I'm just obsessed oh, I'm with in. it. I'm in. I'm all the way in. I'll tell you what's great, actually, um, is if please. you turn on descriptive audio tracks on on movies um part of what they describe you know this is for people who are visually impaired or you know people just want to experience the narration which sometimes is fantastic like the narration for the new dungeons dragons movie in the uk is done by sue perkins from british bake-off and she's she's amazing but you can't watch it in the u.s the u.s is a different version (laughs) so i need like a pirated uk version of the (laughs) honor among thieves so i can just hear sue perkins Anyway, at the start, if you turn on this track, at the start of the films, the narrators often describe the logos. And uh, this fascinates me. It's someone very descriptively and with really economical language saying something like, against a field of black, a single point of light, the word Sony appears and then fades to black. Like this beautiful poem about corporate logos. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love it. modern. (laughs) Yeah. I'm in. I am in. That's that's what I'm uh, watching. I, that's what I'm binging. Okay, great. Good, good. Okay, I like that. That's. I mean, you're giving me solid recommendations. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about Hi, Honey, I'm Homo. Yes. Um, where where did the uh, where did the idea for this book come from? Well, I mean, the short version is that now as an adult, I just love television, and so I can't sure. I can't get enough talking about TV shows. The characters who like just you know like the Golden Girls all feel like our best friends. Uh, and they're so like the, the, the good sitcoms, the best sitcoms are just like art and they're, they're beautiful and they're works of art. And it just feels so like supermarket sweep. It just feels comfortable to spend time with them. But also, you know, on a, on a deeper level uh, <laughs> is that I've worked in the entertainment industry. You know, I worked at Lucasfilm and I worked at Jim Henson Company. I worked at, you know, a couple different ad agencies and things. And then I've also worked, you know, after after that, I had this sort of political awakening where I got very involved in gay politics and activism. And I left entertainment to work on the lawsuit that brought marriage equality to the Supreme Court. And, you know, and we won. So hooray. Um, mm-hmm. And between those two worlds, I started to see how much the entertainment industry and the politics industry are kind of the same thing. And they they tell the same story. Um, you know, you can watch Golden Girls and laugh at the jokes, which is great. But there's also, you know, tucked around the show here and there. And this is this is true of pretty much any piece of media, of course. It's telling a story of people's lives and uh, in, in real life and how the country is changing. And it, it holds up this mirror to ourselves that, uh, you know, you might not realize, you know, if you're laughing at the nanny or friends or bewitched or whatever, uh, that you're kind of seeing this story play out of 
who we, and by we, I, you know, there's a lot of we's that can be Americans, queer people, you know, minorities, religious, whatever, whatever group you want. Um, it's telling this, you know, back out from the sitcom a little bit. And it starts to form like a magic eye painting, this new picture of, of, of our history. And, you know, in particular, I'm very interested in queer history and who we are and how we connect to each other and where we come from. Because, you know, our, our history is sort of lost in different fragments because we couldn't talk about ourselves for so long. Uh, but we've always existed. We've always been around. You know, we've always been you know, taking care of our nephews and nieces for our straight relatives who couldn't be there or whatever our job has been. So, um, you know, I want to foreground that. I want to show people like, hey, we've always been here and here's here's where we come from and here's what we are a part of. And sitcoms mm -hmm. are a great way to do it because it, it, I, I at least, and I think a lot of people feel so close to those shows and just love them so much. Yeah. Uh, the book opens with uh, with someone saying something in a, in a way that is so perfect and succinct I, that I cannot wait to use it uh, and pretend that it's mine. <laughs> um, it is um, it is about the show Soap. Mm -hmm. uh, a person has uh, has decided to to register a complaint about the show Soap. Mm -hmm. Can you can you just explain that scene for us? Yeah, well, so Soap briefly was this extremely controversial, at least before it aired, show on ABC mm -hmm. in the late seventies, um, and it was gonna. There was this news article about how it has sacrilegious sex and alien abductions and children who are possessed, and um, you know, every controversial thing you can think of is going to be a parody of soap operas, and so before it even airs, there's protests and on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum here, because conservatives are like, how dare you show something so raunchy on television? And then queer people are, catch wind that there's going to be a gay character. And they're like, Oh no, not this again. And rightly they assume that it's going to be a really negative portrayal because that's pretty much all television had been given us, had, you know, had been doing. Right. So you got all these protests going on. And then late one night, Marsha Posner Williams, who was working at that time as a secretary in the production office, gets a call from somebody who says, I want a, the address of where I can write an angry letter about this show. And, you know, they've been getting like people picketing the office. Someone said, if you stuck your head out a window, somebody threw a brick at it. And so she had just, mm -hmm. Marcia had had enough. And so she says to this person, okay, sure. Happy to give you the address, but what do you want to write the letter about? And the guy says, well, I'm really angry about this show. And she's like, oh, have you seen it? And he's like, well, no, it hasn't aired yet. And she says, okay, so what you want to write the letter about is not what you think of the show, but what someone else thinks of the show or what they've told you to think about the show. And then, mm -hmm. you know, this this isn't how the guy expected the call to go. The conversation ensues. She eventually talks him into like waiting to actually see the thing that he's upset about. And he's like, all right, I'll wait to see the show. And she says at the, you know, as she's talking to me, because I interviewed a bunch of people who were involved in the production of these shows. She's talking to me about the experience years later. She's, you know, says of that guy who she talked down, she says, I like to think I won that one. I'm sorry, but fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> She's this very sweet I woman until I'm you get sorry, her mad. Yeah. But fuck off. That's so beautiful. You're not telling me what you think. You're telling me what somebody else thinks mm -hmm. is, is so, uh, it can apply to so many situations. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. as now. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's stunning. So soap eventually does uh, hit the airwaves. What's your what's your 
What's your policy on soap? What's your take on soap? Oh, I love it. I think it's just the greatest. Yeah. I mean, it, for one thing, it's Susan Harris who created the Golden Girls and you know did a lot of other work. Sure. And she's just amazing and fantastic. She like, I was about to say can do no wrong, but there is some wrong. There is, soap didn't quite nail it. Part of the problem here is that soap was. I, I'm not going to say a one woman show, but Susan was doing like the pretty much the bulk of every all the writing. Uh, until Stu Silver was, who's another writer, came in and l- later went on to do "Throw Mama from a, from the Train," which uh, isn't, you know, it's a little a little connection, a bridge from the '70s to the '80s. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, soap does get the queer stuff a little off at, at first. Um, the Jody character, who's the gay man played by Billy Crystal, um, at first is kind of flat and just you know your stereotype TV flamboyant, you know, gay next door kind of you know sassy gay best friend. Not a lot of depth mm-hmm. there. To his credit, Billy Crystal at the time was like, this isn't giving me much to do. Can we work on this character and try to give him a little bit more? Susan listened, and they did. Um, there's a really rocky storyline at first that conflates gender expression and sexual orientation. You know, and it's a common thing of the misperception of the 60s and 70s. Like, oh, well, the character is gay and a gay man, if left to his own devices, just wants to become more and more feminine until he becomes a woman. And, you know, so there's a storyline about like, I'm getting a sex change. And it's never clear because I don't think the, you know, people involved in the show really understood if he's doing it because he wants to marry his boyfriend and this is a legal trick or if he feels like he actually is a woman or, you know, or or what. Um, Eventually that storyline wraps up pretty beautifully actually he has a really um a low point that is difficult to imagine a sitcom today doing it like there is a it goes to a very dark place and billy crystal's performance is amazing susan harris's writing is fantastic um and there's a beautiful speech uh by i can't remember the actor's name but he played miles on the golden girls and i believe he was wrote as was he wrote his dad he was he was someone's dad on mary tyler moore Anyway, this act, Harold Gould plays this, does this great speech where he, it's a speech I think that really speaks to queer people about feeling like things are desperate and sad and horrible and then pulling yourself back from that and getting up and facing another day. Um, and that really marks a turnaround for that character. Uh, the Jody, the gay character, suddenly after that point, knows who he is, knows what he wants, um, and is very confident. He has a beautiful coming out scene in that first season. He becomes a parent. Uh, he co-parents with a lesbian. Uh, he doesn't, you know, unfortunately the show never shows him having like a serious relationship. TV wasn't quite ready for that. But mm-hmm. I, overall, I you know, to echo Harvey Firestein in um, The Celluloid Closet, uh, visibility at any cost. And if they get some things wrong, that's okay. We can deal with the things that they got wrong, but it's better than having no gays on television at all. Right. What What's your first TV gay? What was, what was the first time wow. you recognized a gay character on television? Oh, wow. Who's my first TV gay? Who's your gateway gay? My gateway gay. That's such a good question. Um, you know... Th- so this is kind of a cheating answer, but um, something that really sticks in my mind, and I'm sure there were others before this. Uh, wh- okay, okay, there's, there's, I'm going to give you two. One is as a teenager, I saw a airing of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert on VH1 with interstitials at the commercials hosted by RuPaul. And that wasn't quite the identity that spoke to me, but it gave me something. It gave me something um, to right. be like, oh, this is here's characters both on the show and RuPaul. 
Here's characters who are happy and content and they like each other. You know, there's a whole family here and they're confident and they're high status. This is amazing. I, I, th- I thought we could only be sad and tragic. So there was that. Yeah, and then that. kind of pre-gay, like as a very young kid, um, I think one character that I kind of glommed onto and identified with, this might not, this might not be a gay thing, but um, I, this is very half-baked, but the character Boober on Fraggle Rock... Um, something about him. He has kind of like an odd couple, like the neat, I can never remember which one of the odd couple is the neat one, but he has, is it Felix? (laughs) Is it Felix or is it Oscar? I can't remember, but I think it's Felix. Yeah. So he has kind of that vibe. There's something about Boober that is, that feels homosocial to me that I can't quite put my finger on, but his fastidiousness, his outsideriness, um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite gay so much as just like, you're different and you don't like, here's what it is. You don't like the rambunctious boy stuff. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I think a lot of queer people have this experience of like knowing something's incompatible on some level with people around us and not knowing why or not having the words to express it. And I think as a, as a kid, before I really, you know, was thinking about like sex or anything like that, um, just thinking about like how I don't adhere to the gender roles that I see around me. I think Boober kind of gave me someone to be like, that's, that's me. That's the one. Also Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was my, that was my preteen crush. Wow. Explain. Oh, well, it's like, this is a thing. This is a blind spot for me. Four. Why, why him? Four muscle guys who live together and the the only clothes they wear are a bandana. Uh, (laughs) Literally trapped in a shell. Yes. Yeah. So, and Michelangelo was like the cool disinhibited one. So I think like, Honestly, the headcanon that I'm forming now is like I'm shipping Boober and Michelangelo because <laughs> he's like the the casual surfer who doesn't care and he's the messy one. Uh, and uh-huh. I think, you know, when I was at a point in my life when I was like trying to get out of my shell uh, and yeah. I, I wish that I wasn't so, you know, as a kid, I was I was pretty repressed. Um, yeah, I think Michelangelo gave me something to feel, uh, you know, like to aspire to. Sure. That's Grover for me. Mm. Grover was my guy. Oh, sure. And Grover. With, I, I related very strongly. With the secret identity, Grover. with Super Grover. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, uh, but but he is cute too. Yes. He's, he's everything that a, a young gay boy should aspire to. Worked as a waiter, like all gay men. Worked as a waiter. Exactly. <laughs> Not a great waiter. No. Did you ever work as a waiter? I did. I did. I worked at a pizza yeah. place for, uh, for a yeah. summer. It was a disaster. Yeah. Same. I was, yeah, I worked at a German restaurant on 88th Street in New York City. I was a very bad waiter. Very bad waiter. I couldn't remember anybody's. I would just put all the food down on the table and let them figure out because I couldn't remember yeah. who ordered what. So I just set it down yeah. there. And like, you arrange it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know how to open a uh, bottle of wine. Oh, no. I don't know how to do it. Uh-huh. I just li- I lied. I was like, I of course lied and said that I had a ton of uh, work experience. They're not going to check. Sure. Didn't uh, didn't know how to open a bottle of wine oh, no. the whole time. Actually, I didn't learn until years later. Uh, okay, so um, uh, we also get into uh, immediately in the book we get into Bewitched, mm-hmm. which uh, in your estimation kind of serves as an allegory for you know uh, being an outsider, sort of uh, passing in a, yeah. in a straight world. Yeah, Explain Bewitched. Oh gosh, our, I love it. To our young 
listeners. So Bewitched was um, one of my early shows that I watched on television because it was on Nick at Night, so I could watch it in syndication. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't object to Bewitched. Who could be? Uh, who could object? Uh, you know, conservatives can find a reason for everything. But right. so the premise is uh, a mortal human man marries a secret witch, and they decide that they need to blend in and become a normal family in the suburbs. And it's a it's a show that on the surface is just fun and light and frothy and silly. And uh, you could just enjoy it as a silly joke show. And that's great. But also Elizabeth Montgomery, who is the star and had a lot of authority on the show, has said that they wanted the show to speak to outsiders and people who felt different. And and it does. You know, you can read it as an allegory for a mixed faith marriage or an interracial marriage or, you know, somebody who has a non-visible disability. There's a lot of different ways that you can um, look at the show as a conversation about people who are not your traditional family. You know, up until now, you know, the early days of the sitcom were all nuclear families and father knows best and leave it to Beaver and, you know, a, a husband, a wife, the kids, suburb, suburban family, contented life. Um, and the 60s is where we start to see the civil rights movement and people demanding more and, you know, different different family structures finally getting some attention. Um, so on the surface, it looks like here's just a heterosexual family, but you can't get away from how clearly a person of, of, you know, from a lot of different marginalized communities could identify with the show early in the series run. It's, it's like in the first, I think it's episode five or eight or somewhere around there. There's an episode called The Witches Are Out. And like already we're talking about coming out, whether they intended this or not. Uh, the Witches Are Out, and it's about how Halloween is coming. The witches are very upset because it's a time when people depict witches with warts and broomsticks and they're eating children and they're ugly and haggard and terrible. And how distressing that is for them. And we see that the witches are this lovely, I mean, they look like a, a women's sewing circle or something they're in these lovely little hats and dresses and drinking tea and just being so charming uh one of them is played by retta shaw who is the one of the um the the maid from mary poppins uh and they're just the nicest little old ladies uh so in the the episode is about samantha confronting her husband darren who's an advertising executive and he's about to do this campaign with ugly witches and she has dialogue like, don't you understand those stereotypes hurt? Like, what an astonishing thing for a sitcom to be saying in 1967, or it might have been 66. Uh, she said, you know, saying like, when we see ourselves this way, it's not accurate and it hurts our feelings and it feels terrible. And so eventually what they do, what the witches decide to do is they pick it, they protest, which is very of its moment, of its time. And we see them holding signs. What they do is they, because they're magical beings, they invade the dreams of a executive, a a candy company executive who wants to use evil witches on his product. And they're holding signs that say, witches are people too. We demand a new image. And it's so similar to something that happened just like a few weeks before the episode aired. What's widely regarded to be the first public protest by queer people. This is in real life outside an army recruiting station in Manhattan, holding almost the same signs. Homosexuals died for the U.S. too. We demand sexual privacy. Their signs and their demands are so similar. And I don't think it's a case of Bewitched being like, oh, hey, look, there was a gay protest in New York. Better put that on the show. But I think it speaks to what was happening in the culture of the time. Uh, People demanding, for one thing, better representation of minorities and being public in ways that had been very dangerous for them to do 
before. And those people who could take the risk and declare themselves doing it, taking taking a very bold move. Right. Well, uh, sitcom-wise, who who in your mind was the first to sort of get it right, gay character Oh, wise? boy. You know, that's a tough question. I, like, it's very easy to say who got it wrong and why. But one of the yeah. challenges of getting it- Which we can do that. Oh, yeah, for who sure. Who got it wrong oh, and why? Oh, boy. Lots of them. <laughs> Lots of them. I mean, yeah. even Soap, which I love, got Jody a little bit wrong by not, you know, confusing gay and trans. You know, obviously someone can be both, but- um, Right. The show clearly doesn't know what to do with them. Um, I think uh, you know, Three's Company, which I just started watching, has somewhat of a regressive attitude. But also, sure. but also, the Ropers are very accepting. When they are like, oh, he's a gay man, that's lovely. It's so, it's so nice to have a gay around the house, which is yeah. frankly kind of nice. Um, who got it? So who got it right is a great question because I really want to point people in good directions. I think yeah. The Golden Girls does a great job. One of the reasons that it's hard to say right is because obviously there's a billion different ways to be queer and nothing can fully capture that experience. Um, so, you know, even when you point at the golden girls, you know, they had a bunch of gay characters, uh, shocking, shocking amount of gay characters given the, given the decade, but they were all white. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a big problem with TV of that era that you don't really see a lot of people of color who are queer, you know, until you get later into the 90s. I will say Rock does a great job. The show Rock uh, in the house, the sitcom in the house has RuPaul in an episode uh, basically teaching um, LL Cool J what drag is. Uh, and yeah. that's a great episode. It's actually written by Jeff Dutiel, who wrote the um, Dorothy Has a Lesbian Friend episode of The Golden Girls. Uh, uh-huh. And also All in the Family does a really good job. Straight out of the gate, episode five, season one, episode five, they have an episode called Judging Books by Covers, where Archie is convinced that he can tell a gay person because they're all they're all la di da, flapping their arms around, little birdies about to fly out the window. And he, he thinks that he clocks a gay man. Um, and then it turns out that Archie's butch mask friend, Steve, is actually a gay man. And Archie just refuses to believe it. And I, it's a great episode because it essentially says you know, the, the title's a bit on the nose. You can't tell them by, you can't always tell by looking. And yeah. what I love about that as a sort of a coming out episode, because Steve, they never say the word gay. They never say homosexual. They do use some slurs. Uh, they use, they say fruit and fairy and flower and the other F word. But um, you have a character say, confirm to Archie, to the bigot that he's gay. Uh, just unafraid, unblinking eye contact, you know, without saying gay, just affirming that he is that he is gay and you know Archie refuses to believe him and I love to compare that to um, one of my other favorite coming out um, moments which isn't exactly a coming out moment but it kind of is on Schitt's Creek in the honeymoon episode the the wine uh, not the label scene uh, between David and Stevie where she thinks she's clocked him she's just judged him as gay and then she is shocked to discover that might not be the truth and they have this beautiful metaphor of, well, I like red wine and I like white wine and uh, a rosé and a Chardonnay that used to be, a, you know, something else. And um, unlike Archie, who hears that someone who's queer and is like, ah, they're just kidding. Um, you really see how television's changed because Stevie hears that. She's like, oh, that isn't what I was expecting and I misjudged him. But OK, I get it. And it's a great evolution for television over the decades. Obviously, a lot happened between yeah. those of from, nah, you're probably not, to, 
oh, I'm listening to you. And oh, okay, I see. I see. I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. How, how are you? How are you feeling in Pride Month 2020? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm of two minds. On one hand, uh, my partner and I are researching uh, what it would take to obtain citizenship in another country should we need to get out of the U.S. Because uh, you know, basically the way I'm feeling is uh, I've heard this song before and I don't know if it's like the 1970s where there's a bit of a backlash and then a surge, you know, because it's always a pendulum swing, right? You know, civil rights come right. and they go. They, people say the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice and it doesn't do that by itself. You got to keep pulling on it because it wants to straighten back out. So, yeah. um, you know, we're at a point where in, in queer history right now, if, if we could talk about our current moment as history, because it will be soon, uh, we're at a point that feels very much like the 70s when we had Anita Bryant's pushing back against the gay liberation from Stonewall 10 years earlier. Or is it more like Berlin in the late 20s where, you know, you don't know how bad it's going to get until it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But I'm also optimistic because we've been here before, because we've seen this so many times in the past, there are a lot of lessons we can draw from. And I didn't mean for it to be that way. When I started writing my book, when I started writing Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, I wasn't like, okay, in two years, there's going to be a real strong backlash and we're going to need to look at this history to figure out what to do. But now, now that I've done it, now that I got the book, um, we have been here before. We have seen this kind of a backlash and we dealt with it. And one of the ways we dealt with it was by making people laugh. Comedy is such a good way to counteract bigotry uh, and entertainment. Um, Norman Lear has this great line where he describes comedy as an intravenous. It's a way to get something into somebody while they are distracted with laughter. And, you know, I think entertainment has to start with entertainment. You can't be like, all right, my mess my mission is to deliver a message because I think that's always going to flop and feel forced. But when you have the capacity to entertain, if you can get the message in there, uh, as Norman did on many of his shows, and you know, even Shit's Creek, like that's a great show about tolerance and learning to be a better person. If you can tell great stories and also show people their better selves, I think that's a really good way to push the culture in a positive direction. And, you know, I'm not just guessing at that. We did it. We could do it again. And laughter is a great way to do it. Yeah. And a pie in the face. Literally yeah. a pie in the face. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you need the pie in the face. The, idea. The, the, yes, I would, I would love, I would love to start seeing that. Kind of, I mean, this is the other reason why comedy is so great is because it's a great way to, you know, do what journalism used to do, afflict the comfortable. You know, yeah. comedy is a great way to puncture the people who think they're they're bigger and better than everybody else. Comedy is what brought Archie down and comedy is what can bring down the Ron DeSantis's of the world. Yep. Florida, get to, get to bacon, <laughs> get to bacon a pie, yes. hot fucking pie in the face. Mm -hmm. Matt Baum. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. Hi, honey, I'm homo is the book. It is such a fun read and it makes me want to spend uh, more time in front of the television. Please which, do. Frankly, it's good for is, you. It is good for you. Ultimately. Yes. Matt Baum, you're the best. Thank Happy you so Pride. much. Happy Pride to you. Homophilia is a World of Wonder podcast produced and engineered by Renee Colvert. Our theme song is by Ben Wise. We want to thank Michael Pressman and everybody at World of Wonder. Please follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, at Homophilia Pod. 
And if you would give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we sure would appreciate it.